So you know my mom was a nurse, right? Yeah, she did the whole, like, home health nurse thing. Yeah. She eventually had to stop because she kept running out of red crayons. What? What? Why would she need red crayons in the first place? Because she always had to draw blood. <sighs> Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson. And I'm Haley. And welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy. Famous artists he'll never be able to play like. And topics or tips about guitars and music recording. So, sorry that we didn't get to uh, record last week. Uh, I was very sick and losing my voice. Um... It was not a fun time. I think Haley caught what I had going on, and she's still a little sick. Yeah, thanks for that. You're welcome. But you're good enough to record, though, so there's that. Right? Well, don't get mad if you have to, like, pause because I cough up a lung. <laughs> no, I'll just leave it in there. Have everybody, you know, feel sorry for you. Send Haley get well cards. <laughs> um, last time that we talked, we just done the studio upgrade. Um, I found out a little bit through some trial and error that I'm still not done. I had to uh, replace my stupid home theater subwoofer that I had put in here in only the left channel for some reason for my sub with like an actual studio sub. Um, and then uh, I think that I'm going to put an like an Avantone mix cube in here. We were talking about it earlier. That's the speaker that uh, Quincy Jones used when he was mixing Michael Jackson's Thriller. Um, right. I want to put one of those in here in mono just as like a you know check your mix kind of thing you know like here's the funny thing too about that like the mix cube does not sound good it's not a good sounding speaker but its whole point is like one of those things where you know you listen to your music on your on your studio monitors where they sound great they're super flat you might have a sub that reaches all the way down to like 30 20 hertz um but the mix cube it sounds bad on purpose not i don't know i wouldn't say it sounds bad per se but it gives you another reference to check your mix usually i use some headphones i use my studio monitors and then i use some crappy skull candy headphones to like check my mix but this will give me another thing to check um in addition to that so still not done with the studio but it's a work in progress um we did something kind of exciting today. We watched the documentary about We Are the World. Haley actually recommended it. You want to you wanna tell them about it? I really just wanted to watch it because of Michael Jackson. <laughs> Don't judge me. Um, yeah, I found it on Netflix, and it's all about how they got together and recorded We Are the World. And all the like behind-the-scenes footage and stuff like that. Yeah, it was really cool. Uh, we'll talk about it a little more at the end. But for now, let's get into the news. So first up, on February 22nd, Gibson opened their first Gibson Garage, their name for their flagship in-house store, in London. It's the first one of the Gibson garages to be opened outside the United States in general. This grand opening day saw three different guitar legends, Brian May, Tony Iommi, and Jimmy Page, serve as endorsements for the brand. It's no secret that Tony Iommi has been a huge endorser of Gibson for years, with countless signature models based on his SG under both the Gibson and the Epiphone line. While Jimmy Page has certainly been no stranger to Gibson guitars, 
The big news was on a new signature model in collaboration between Jimmy Page and Gibson. Gibson will now be producing a double neck signature of Jimmy's famous double neck SG, with one side being a 12 string and one side being a 6 string. The guitar is set to release in March, and the amount of research Gibson claims they've put into the guitar is astounding, even going all the way so as to scan a 3D model of the guitar that they liken to an MRI. And in fact, I want to like touch on that for a moment. How much of a difference would a 3D scan actually make? Like, of course, there's this whole argument about tone woods, pickup selection, mass, body shape, weight relief, everything under the sun that can be argued to affect tone has had some point made about it. 3D scanning, though. I honestly feel like at this point, we're really starting to split hairs. I mean, like, I get it. Some people really want the sound of their favorite artists, but I feel like the graph of technology to sound is really sort of like a, like an inverse logarithm. Like, sure, if you start out with a Fender-style amp and a Gretsch Electromatic, yeah, you're going to be pretty far from the Jimmy Page sound. But if you get a Marshall Plexi and then an SG or a Les Paul with PAF-style pickups, you'll be getting a lot closer. All cool and well. Then we start looking into the same pedals. Okay, you get a Phase 90, you get an SD1, you get a Tone Bender. Cool, little closer. But past this, I mean, even if the Tonewood argument held a lot more water than it actually does, we're really talking about physical nuances at this point. Okay, I agree with you, but what about Stradivarius violins? What about them? Well, for those of you who don't know, Antonio Stradivari was a violin maker in the late 17th and early 18th century. His violins literally sell for millions of dollars, and they're considered by many musicians to be the premier quality violin with a tone like no other. It's gotten to the point that researchers have conducted scans and chemical analysis of his violins to determine what makes them special, thinking that anything from trees growing during the Little Ice Age, having denser wood, to treating the wood with non-traditional chemicals like calcium and copper have an effect of, on the tone. Okay. I'd see your point, but I'll raise two counterpoints to that. One, violins are just themselves. There's not really any extraneous factor other than the player's fingers and the bow used, both of which have a similar effect when you consider guitar and the player's fingers and the player's pick. Like, that's kind of like the same thing that affects a guitar. But a guitar also has, like, amps and pedals and speakers and whatever's miking it and all other kinds of nonsense that contribute to the tone. Two, there was actually a blind test conducted in 2014 by researchers from Duke University who had violin soloists blind test 12 different violins, five of which were Stradivariuses, uh, one of which was another vintage model, and six of which were brand new. Six out of ten of the soloists chose the brand new violin in both rehearsal rooms and concert halls with a blind test they couldn't distinguish anything. Okay, fair, fair. Now granted, there's not going to be any control group model guitar here that wasn't made with 3D scans, but overall I really see the whole 3D scan thing as more of like a marketing gimmick, like a we're doing this so that we can say we did, rather than anything that provides any real tangible value. It's not like you can reshape the grain or density of the wood a guitar is made of, you can really only cut it to size. I don't know, am I missing anything here? I don't think so, I mean, it does sound kind of more like a... We're doing this because we can, and we're going to say that we did, and we think it's cool. Yeah, I mean, and that whole thing sounds like a rag on Gibson. It's not meant to be. They make good guitars. It's just, I don't know how much difference a 3D scan is really going to make of an instrument, especially when you consider everything else that could be different. If you're really looking to get the Jimmy Page tone, there's only so close you can get until you need to, I don't know, 
chop off his fingers and sew them onto your hand. Okay, that got dark fast. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't meant to be dark, but like it, it, it's true. Your fingers do have a change in how you sound. But sewing them onto sewing someone else's fingers onto your body isn't going to give you their skill. No, it's not going to give you their uh, only practice is going to give you their skill, but I'm talking like just from a sonic perspective. Anything that touches the strings is going to change, and our fingers touch the strings. They change the sound. So if you have daintier fingers than him, you're going to sound different. If you have thicker fingers than him, you're going to sound different. Like, is a 3D scan of the guitar really going to make more difference, really going to make it enough of a difference that you can hear it, especially when most people probably aren't playing through the exact same stuff he was? You know what I mean? I'm just thinking about how much it would hurt to chop your fingers off. <laughs> That's what you got out of that? Yeah. Okay, moving on. At the opening ceremony for that Gibson garage in London, Gibson actually stated that Brian May is now part of the Gibson family. Brian May's signature guitar, the Red Special, is actually something that he built together with his father. He's known to have used it his entire career, along with a few spares and some random guitars from other brands such as Gretsch and Gibson, albeit very sparingly. Brian May actually currently has his own brand, Brian May Guitars, which produces the Red Special made in South Korea for about 850 bucks, pretty far from Gibson's actual price point. The question is, what will actually come of this? Brian May is known for three things, chiefly his Red Special, a Vox AC30, and a treble booster. I mean, you're the queen expert here. Is there anything else? Not really. Other than curly hair and a PhD in... What, what's his PhD in? Astrophysics. I was going to say, it's something crazy. Like, dude could work for NASA. <laughs> Gear-wise, though, Red Special, Vox AC30, Treble Booster, that's like the Brian May trifecta. The guitar is already produced by his own in-house brand. Maybe Gibson will make a USA-made higher-tier version, uh, especially considering the price point of the Red Special. If so, I don't see it selling too well, considering you can get an almost exact to spec version from the man's brand itself. It does seem kind of weird. Yeah, it's not like they're going to make an Epiphone one. I mean, the Epiphone one would be in direct competition with his brand. I don't see that happening. And then a USA made one? I mean, maybe, but do you want a Gibson branded Brian May special or do you want a Brian May branded Brian May special? Brian May branded Brian May special. Yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> I doubt they'll make a treble booster. Uh, as far as I know, Gibson's Maestro series pedals didn't sell very well. Uh, and either way, Brian May has already had a few signature-ish pedals from Catalan Bread. I don't know if they're like an actual partnership or not, but like the Catalan Bread Galileo, I mean, come on. That's definitely a Brian May pedal. Not to mention his exact treble booster is being sold by his own in-house brand once again and manufactured by Night Audio Technologies. So treble booster is likely off the table. And that really just leaves the AC30, which is decidedly Vox. And considering he's one of the biggest names on their roster, I feel like they do everything under the sun to keep him. I'm curious to see what comes out of this. Uh, maybe even some Gibson Murphy Lab replicas, the Red Special. Maybe a 3D scan of the Red Special. <laughs> uh, or possibly something entirely new that he's specking out as an alternative to the Red Special. The I... Blue Special. You know, I was uh, looking at his website earlier when I was uh, scripting for this episode. He makes, they call it like the, the Red Special LE or something, and the poster child of the LE line, limited edition line, is a blue Red Special, and like the tag says, because it doesn't have to be red to be special. Okay, so the green special. 
uh, talking about his spares, I was watching a rig rundown oh where his guitar tech goes through his rig and his backup to the red special is a green version of the right? red special. The purple special. You could probably get that. I, Sure. Yeah, the purple special from Gibson. <laughs> you heard it here first. <sighs> so, John Gourley. Gourley? Gourley? I don't know. You know Portugal the man better than I do. I don't know how to say it. Well, John, I'm sorry if we pronounce it wrong. John G., the lead singer and guitarist of Portugal the Man, is getting his own signature electromatic broadcaster from Gretsch. I do like Portugal the Man, but I'm not crazy into them. Uh, I do. They have a very interesting sound. I was going to say, when I saw that, I was like, I know that's a band that Haley likes. We should probably talk about it. So his signature guitar is actually pretty cool. Uh, it's got a semi-hollow maple body, maple neck, Indian laurel fingerboard, 22 frets, and Gretsch USA Fultron pickups. For the controls, it's got a master volume like you'll normally find on a Gretsch, although I'm happy to say this one actually has the treble bleed circuit stock. It's like a super easy mod to do. It's Depending on how you do it, it's literally two parts, one resistor and one capacitor. It's dead simple. I absolutely love it. I do it to almost every guitar, so it's great to see a manufacturer just putting it on there from the start other than, like, Fender. Isn't Gretsch overseen by Fender? Uh, yeah. Now now that I think about it, I guess we're still in the same boat. Um, it's got a Bigsby B70 vibrato unit, a Graftec nut, and locking tuners to boot. It honestly really sounds like what I'd do to a Gretsch guitar myself. In fact, I think... I actually did do all of that to my Gretsch. Wait, seriously? <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, I went with a different pickup choice in mine. I forget what's actually in it now, but uh, that's almost part for part what I did to mine. I'm surprised. The guitar itself is selling for about 1200 bucks, brand new, so it's a bit of a pretty penny. But honestly, I think if you took a bone stock electromatic and factored in the price of the mods to get it to that level that the signature's at you'd probably be pretty close in price anyway, save a little bit for the actual labor of installing it. So I'd say it's a pretty fair price tag. I don't know, what do you think? I think it's a little bit expensive. Yeah, I mean, 1200 bucks is getting up there to like definitely a higher tier guitar, but that that's really not much compared to Fender's like two grand USA lines or whatever they're up to now. I don't think it's too bad, especially compared when you look at the parts and the features that are on it. So this week, I wanted to talk about a topic that seems quite taboo for some reason, uh, especially on the guitar subreddit, extended range guitars. Now, it's no secret that I'm normally a metal player, so I feel right at home with extended range guitars, but I remember when I was younger and just kind of got introduced to the concept, wondering if it was something that I really needed or would benefit from. Over the past couple of years, I've seen an explosion in popularity of extended range guitars especially. Yeah, they're definitely becoming a much more popular option, but I really want to sort of break down what an extended range guitar is, what they're used for, and most importantly, if it's something that you can actually benefit from. Real extended range guitars actually only encompass guitars that have additional strings in order to reach lower, higher notes, but since that in and of itself is going to be somewhat cut and dry, we're going to lump in everything from baritone guitars, double necks, 12 strings, and our traditional extended range guitars. Without further ado, let's get to it. The oldest class of non-standard guitar is, surprisingly, the double-neck guitar, first introduced as early as the 1600s, but made popular in the mid-19th century in Austria. The original iteration of this instrument, called the contra guitar, had a standard six-string neck in addition to a fretless neck with nine bass strings. Yep. 
Both necks shared a single sound hole, and it allowed a guitarist to easily switch between two different styles of playing based on the arrangement of a song. During this time period, guitars were really still seen as either a supporting instrument for a small orchestral-style section, or as a parlor instrument for entertaining guests. They weren't really the main event, as in the music of today. Since the contra guitar, various takes on multi-necked instruments have been produced, including a 12-string neck and a bass neck, a 6-string neck and a 12-string neck, and even a 3-necked Picasso guitar. Which, seriously, look it up. This thing looks ridiculous. It's a 3-neck guitar with 42 strings, and some of those necks are shorter than, like, my forearm. <laughs> I think my favorite take on the multi-neck design would probably be Genesis guitarist Mike Rutherford's modulator. This thing had numerous different modules, hence the name, that could all be connected together to create different double-necked instruments. The whole thing actually has a 6-string, two different 12-strings in different tunings, and a 4-string bass, with any of the units being able to be used independently, or one of the 6-string or 12-string sections being combined with the bass section. It's a really unique take on the instrument. The question here really boils down to, do I need one? Well, you can barely play one guitar, so... <laughs> wow. Shots fired, huh? What is with you today? You've really been going after me. I mean, you're not wrong, but... dang. Double neck guitars, in my opinion, are really more of a novelty thing unless you're playing live and absolutely need to switch tunings or instrument types very quickly within the same th song. I mean, all the double neck really is is two instruments in one. Most musicians use the same instrument for an entire song, changing guitars in between songs, so I don't really see it as something that's entirely needed, but you never know. If you get a song that you want to perform live that has a six-string part closely followed by a 12-string part or vice versa, this might be the answer to your problems. The next oldest class of non-standard guitar is the 12-string, and it's honestly pretty simple in its execution. Exactly. All a 12-string guitar really is is a sort of 6-string with an analog style of chorus going on, I guess is the best way to describe it. You take your standard 6-string, and you pair each string with a smaller gauge partner with the intention of playing each pair as a single string. They're honestly pretty awkward feeling to play. Uh, you sort of gotta rewire your brain to make sure that you're fingering both strings in the pair at once. But the sound they produce is nonetheless interesting and fun. The origin of the 12-string guitar comes from the late 1800s and early 1900s, with many European, Spanish, and Mexican bands and orchestras using a 12-string. During this time, they weren't really considered as anything more than a mere curiosity, and it wasn't until the Roaring Twenties and the advent of blues that 12-strings began to take shape as a seriously considered instrument. Up until this point, all of the mass-produced 12-strings were acoustic, but in the 1960s, we start to see some guitarists, such as session player Carol Kay, who is primarily a bass player, converting their electric six-string guitars into 12-strings. The first 12-string electric that was mass-produced for the public most likely comes from Dan Electro in 1961 in the form of the Bell Zuki, closely followed two years later by the Vox Bazooki and Tempest 12. Throughout the 60s, the 12-string picked up steam, no doubt owed to its use by George Harrison with a Rickenbacker 360 12-string on the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night album. In their actual use, 12-string guitars are typically tuned with the lowest four strings tuned an octave apart. For example, your low E is an E2 like your standard guitar, while its paired string is an E3. Your low A is an A2 while its paired string is an A3. But when we get to the high B and E strings, we see the strings tuned to the same note, both at B3 and E4. This is simply a standard tuning for them. If you want to try one yourself, feel free to experiment. If you're looking to get the sound of a 12-string, but want a bit cleaner of a recording, one way to go about it is simply tracking two guitars together, one tune an octave higher than the first. 
Yeah, uh, I don't own a 12-string uh, simply because I wouldn't have much of a use for it, but if I want the sound, a great way to do it is using a pitch shift effect. We can do it one of two ways, where we'll either use a pitch shifter and blend the octave and the standard signal together on the same track, or if we want to bring a little more life to it, we can actually double track with one signal being standard and the other having the octave applied. For example, here is our standard, nice and simple cowboy chord guitar track, just dead clean. And here I've taken an MXR poly blue octave and I've blended a higher octave with the original track. So I'm just using the octave plus one knob and the dry knob together. No modulation, it's in polyphonic mode, um, just dead simple octaving. supposed to sound good? It sounds like two people playing at the same time. Well, I mean, that's the point of a 12-string guitar. You have two sets of strings paired together. Um, I wish I wish I had a 12-string guitar here to show you, but I, I don't. Um, that's not the best approximation of it. You can still hear some digital artifacts, and at least to me, that sounds very organ-like, if that makes yeah. sense, kind of like a pipe organ. But a better way to do it is taking a separate guitar track, playing the same thing overdubbed on the first with an octave applied. So that's what we've done here, and you can blend in the octave signal and the dry signal together however you want, in addition to EQing them separately. It really just gives you the most control that you can have. sounded a lot better yeah it in that track the octave is definitely blended down a lot more um i put a high pass filter on the dry guitar and i put a uh, high cut on the octave guitar to take out some of that digital harshness it's not the best approximation of a 12 string but it surely beats spending another couple hundred dollars on a 12 string that you might use once in my opinion <laughs> If you're going to go about it this way, make sure that you're using a very clean tracking polyphonic octaver. If you're using a monophonic octaver or something with poor tracking, the digital artifacts left by processing will likely ruin the effect. Won't be a good time. So our next bit of evolution prior to the advent of true extended range guitars is the baritone guitar. Baritone guitars show up extremely sparsely until the 1950s when they're finally made popular by Dan Electro. Baritone guitars are particularly interesting because there's no prescribed use for them, but common use cases see them tuned a perfect fourth, perfect fifth, or a major third lower than a traditional six string. Yeah, 
This is due to the fact that your baritone guitars are typically used as a lower accompaniment to your standard electric guitar, either creating a much more somber sound, or even being used as an addition to or in place of a bass entirely. Baritone guitars typically have a scale length from somewhere between 27 inches and 30 inches, with this one that we're using here having a scale length of 28 inches. I'm actually cheating just a bit with this demo because this guitar is also a 7-string, but we'll be tuning it to a standard baritone tuning from lowest to highest B, E, A, D, F sharp, and B, simply ignoring the highest string. If a baritone guitar is just a down-tuned guitar, what's the point of using one? Well, today that seems like an easy question, especially since I've got a few guitars here with some absolutely chungus string gauges to go down to drop G sharp. But back during the advent of baritone guitars, that wasn't a very common thing to see. If you wanted to get that low, you were pretty much just using a bass. We really have to look at acoustics first, where our standard medium string gauge, our 13s, pretty large in comparison to an electric guitar. If you think about how a string works, how do we get a higher note? You push down on a fret, the higher the fret is, the higher the note. Exactly. What we're actually doing is making the length of the string that's allowed to vibrate shorter when we're fretting a note. The shorter we make the string, the higher the pitch. If we want to make the pitch lower than an open string, how do we do that? Well, at that point you have to downtune. But as we downtune, the string gets looser and floppier, to the point that it's difficult to play. Baritone guitars, because of their traditionally longer scale lengths, make the total length of the string longer, allowing you to have a lower pitch with the same string gauge at the same tension. It was really more of a reinventing the wheel thing. Instead of making thicker string gauges, they just made a longer guitar. So what are some ways we can use the baritone guitar in our recordings? I mean, the simplest way to use it is just as a downtune guitar. That's not really all that fun to demo, as it's not a crazy idea by any means. But what is fun, and is commonly used on country records, is using the baritone as what's called a tic-tac bass, where it's either used as a bass to accompany our guitar, or played in conjunction with our regular bass. To demonstrate this, let's take our simulated 12-string track from before, we're just going to use the dry signal, and we'll add a bass part to it with our baritone. We're going to EQ our baritone guitar down into the lower frequencies so it doesn't get eaten by the guitar and play a simple bass part. That wasn't a bass? No. No, that was my seven string. Yeah. Huh. Played along with that, uh, I think for the cowboy chords I used my Telecaster, but uh, yeah, that was the seven string being used as a baritone guitar. It was before the advent of like, or the popularity of the electric bass, a lot of these bands were still using guitars, but they were using like a big double bass, uh, you know, that huge cello looking thing. So one of the ways that people got electric bass tracks was using a baritone guitar as an electric bass. Now, while this is a simpler way of accomplishing the electric bass track before the advent of the true electric bass, a method that really lets this open up is using an electric bass in conjunction with a baritone guitar playing the same thing. We blend these two together to give us a huge amount of control over a really unique bass tone. Let's give it a listen.
How is that different from a normal bass? So if you listen closely to it, um, which we can go back and replay it if you need to, the advantage to that is it really tends to keep the definition of the notes because you're getting the attack of the baritone guitar while keeping the low frequency like thump of the bass because you've got all those low frequencies going on. So instead of just like a really soft kind of ominous plucking that lacks some real definition in the attack or the transient, you're capturing the transient while you're still keeping that low end power and energy, if that makes sense. I know that's a lot of technical terms at that point. Many word. I don't know. Did you hear the difference? Yes, I did. Okay. It's really more of like a country trick. You don't really see it a lot in like a modern rock or metal. Um, well, that explains why I'm confused. Yeah, but it works really well. I'm a big fan of it. I think it's something that could be used to great extent in rock and metal, especially if you want like a faster bass with more definition to it. I think the only issue is that a lot of like rock and metal tracks tend to use a really distorted bass sound, which brings back some of that clarity in the first place. So it might not be needed necessarily. You know, in fact, just as a fun little piece of music history, you may remember from our episode about the history of fuzz that the first instance of distortion on a guitar, which made it onto a record, is widely attributed to the bass track on Marty Robbins' Don't Worry from 1961. This track was actually a baritone guitar being played as a bass, and if you skip to about a minute and 25 seconds into the track, you'll hear it. This was actually the result of a faulty channel strip on their recording console. If that's a sound that you want for yourself, we can simulate it by running our baritone through a channel on a mixing console or channel strip and clipping it to within an inch of its life, completely doing the wrong thing. First, we'll play a standard bass style baritone track, and then we'll run it through a clip channel strip and back into the DAW to get our early distortion tones. sounded very fun. There's a lot of character. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the whole concept of it came from a broken piece of equipment, so it's kind of like you're screaming at yourself while you're doing it because you're just... I mean, the clip light on that channel on the mixer stayed illuminated that entire time. It was definitely hard clipping, but it was still cool to do. It's a unique sound that you don't really hear a lot, mostly because it's the wrong way to go about it. We have pedals for that now. <laughs> I bet that made you uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have no idea. I'm like, it was so weird because I'm when I tried to get that sound, I was adjusting everything and trying to do it the right way, but wrong, if that makes sense. Because the whole thing, I mean, the only way to do that is clipping something to within an inch of its life. So I'm sitting here trying to adjust it like, oh, I'm clipping. Wait a minute. That's what I want. <laughs> I don't know. I know it's weird and hard to explain but if that's something you want to do take a channel strip run a baritone guitar through it as a bass and just clip it to the ends of the earth and back it's a blast and now we get into the really fun stuff our true extended range guitars why did you say earlier this was like taboo to talk about <sighs> okay kind of a long story so a couple months ago, somebody made a post in the guitar subreddit where they were talking about like a nine-string Schecter, and for some reason they were immediately banned <laughs> for trolling or something like that. It 
kind of makes sense if you give the mods the benefit of the doubt. There's another sub called Guitar Circle Jerk where they constantly talk about things like Butterscotch Telly sounding better or Boss Katanas being the ultimate amps for True Tone and all that. Just good-natured fun. But I guess they assumed this guy was just trolling instead of asking an actual question, and they banned him. Uh, for a couple weeks after that on various guitar forums, it was like a fun little game to see how quickly you could get banned from the guitar sub, and the easiest way to do that was to post about a nine-string Schecter. That is more guitar internet lore than I would have ever wanted to know. Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely some meta meme information there. Either way, here we're going to have an actual serious discussion about the merits of extended range guitars, what they're used for, and if you need them. Extended range guitars are actually glaringly simple. Uh, in most cases, you're just adding an extra low string to an existing six string. I know a lot of the extended range guitars I see usually look pretty complicated with all kinds of fanned frets, multi-scale bridges, angled pickups, and all kinds of nonsense going on. For sure, that can make them seem more complicated than they actually are. And while some of that is functional in nature, there's a large amount of extended range, especially seven strings, that you wouldn't even notice aren't a standard guitar until you count the tuning pegs. To start with the easiest, seven string guitars simply take your standard six string and add an extra low string on top of the low E, typically tuned to a B in a standard tuning. If you wanted the equivalent of drop D on a seven string, you'd drop that B down to an A to make power chords on the low strings. So you could play songs in standard tuning on a seven string if you just ignored the low B? As long as it was tuned to standard, for sure. Not a problem whatsoever. In fact, the only real functional difference between a standard tuned 7-string and a standard tuned 6-string is an extra 5 lower notes, since the 5th fret on your B string is equal to an open E. The advantages of a 7-string really have to do with being able to reach higher notes more comfortably on solos, as well as having lower notes available to you to have the range of playing in what seems like multiple tunings comfortably. For example, here I've got a 6-string in drop A and a 7-string in drop A. I'll play some power chords and a really fun, chuggy metal riff, followed by a neat little solo. You'll hear that on the 6th string, the solo is much lower in register than on the 7th string, even though I'm playing them on the same actual numbered frets. First up, the 6th string. the same thing on the 7th string. Is, is it supposed to be that choppy? Okay, I'm having a bad day. And in the disclaimer, I say I have bad guitar playing. So, <laughs> yeah, that wasn't my finest work, and I'm not very proud of it, but it gets the point across. Uh, did you hear anything 
that you want to comment on other than how bad I can play? Uh, no, <laughs> nothing comes to mind. No, I'm kidding. Um, so the the chugging opening part sounded lower than the six string, right? It could. Um, they're both in the exact same tuning for the low part. Okay. They're both in drop A. So it's the same notes, but the seven string having beefier strings might have a little more low end content because there's some more mass to vibrate there, if that makes sense. Okay. And then the second half of it, the uh, <clears throat> choppiness, uh, was higher than the six string. Correct. The seven string, because it's got its top six strings in a regular standard tuning, is going to have a lot higher register. Granted, none of those notes were above the 19th fret on that solo, so you could have played the same notes on the drop A six string. The only issue would be they would be a lot less comfortable to reach and a lot more difficult to play cleanly because those frets are going to be a lot tighter. So it's easier and more comfortable to play that same thing on the seven string than it would be on the six string. It's a small difference, but just the addition of the added range on the seven string makes you able to play that solo a bit higher more comfortably. Most of your seven strings are also going to have a longer scale length to help keep your tension up, so you can use thinner string gauges and keep a comparable level of feel and tension to your favorite six string. But what about guitars with more than seven strings? So at that point, it's just a function of math. As long as you use a standard, air quotes, tuning, uh, every low string that you add gives you another five lower notes. An eight string gives you ten lower notes than a six string, a nine string gives you fifteen, a ten string gives you twenty, and so on. But past about eight strings, you're really getting into more creative and experimental tunings, and the guitars are typically played fingerstyle with all kinds of tapping all over the neck. In fact, there's a really cool video up on YouTube of Ishika Nido playing a 14-string guitar where he's essentially using the thicker bass strings to keep up one melody while using the higher strings to play a second melody. And the whole thing sounds like a fully fr fleshed out musical arrangement with low strings taking the place of the bass, the high strings taking the place of guitars and vocals, and the tapping taking the place of percussion. If you're into that kind of stuff, I know Tozen Abasi from Animals of, as Leaders uses an eight-string for most of his music, and it's very much in that realm of happy, experimental type stuff. Animals as Leaders is a blast to listen to, and you can really hear the creativity coming out with it. It's really fun to see somebody use an extended range guitar for something other than just super detuned chugging. Isn't and... that all you use yours for, though? Uh, shush. <laughs> anyway... I like seeing that style of creativity applied to those instruments. That still doesn't answer the question, though. Why do a lot of them look so different? Ah, so you're referring to stuff like the Agile Chiral, where they've got slanted pickups, slanted bridges, and fan frets, yes, right? Yes, exactly. It's not a normal thing by any means to see those on six-string guitars, right? Not really, no. But it also doesn't mean that it's normal on seven-strings, either. Like I said before, there's plenty of seven strings that look completely normal other than a wider neck, wider pickups, and an extra tuning peg like the ESP E2 M27. A lot of it could be chalked up to design choice, but there is some functional aspect to it, starting with the fan frets. Fan frets aren't merely a cosmetic thing. They've actually got a functional purpose to them. Remember how earlier we talked about baritone scales? Yeah, the longer the scale, the lower the tuning at the same tension. Exactly. Fan fret guitars are also referred to as multi-scale guitars, where your lowest string has a much longer scale length, maybe in the realm of 27 or 28 inches, while your highest string is usually at a standard scale length, like 25 and a half inches. So these multi-scale guitars are combining the benefits of a baritone, guitar, baritone scale guitar with a standard scale guitar. That's also the reason for slanted bridges. You'll notice that the lowest string is always further away from the nut than the highest string. But what about the slanted pickups? Well, 
are extended range guitars the only ones with slanted pickups? Well, don't Tellys and Strats have slanted bridge pickups? They sure do. It's not just an extended range thing. Slanting a pickup allows for a change in tone with different strings. Think about the difference between a bridge pickup and a neck pickup. A bridge pickup typically sounds more bright and aggressive, while a neck pickup sounds more mellow and smooth. Exactly, and this primarily has to do with a pickup's proximity to the bridge. The closer we get to the bridge, the less the string vibrates. The less the string vibrates, the more of the attack and treble frequencies come through versus the lower frequencies. If we slant our pickups, we can get a more even response, retaining even more of the bass frequencies on the low strings and keeping the high end of our treble strings bright. Now it's kind of the opposite when it comes to these multi-scale guitars, since the strings are being pinched by the frets at different lengths, slanting the pickup actually gives us a tone closer to a conventional guitar. It's really all about manufacturer design choice. Okay, all that being said, does the average person really need an extended range guitar? I mean, does the average person need any guitar? In the grand scheme of things, no. We need food, we need water, we need shelter. You know we what need... I mean. Hey, you asked the open-ended question. Not being funny, uh, the real answer is it depends on how much you'll use it. Do you need those extra five notes? Is a wider neck more comfortable for you? It's all a question of how much you're going to put a seven-string guitar into practice. When I was younger, I really wanted an eight-string, but they were way too expensive for me, especially considering I wasn't going to use it for more than like one or two songs. All I did was get an old beater used Ibanez RG, buy an eight-string set of strings, and put the lowest six strings on it to get the low tunings I needed for the power chords and the chugs. Sure, I didn't have the ten higher notes on the treble strings, but I wasn't trying to play solos on those songs anyway. Okay, so you could fully get away with stringing a six-string as a seven-string or eight-string. For sure. Uh, in a standard guitar, you're just missing the lower notes, so if you string it as a seven-string or an eight-string, you're just sacrificing five higher notes. For me now, I really only tend to use the seven strings, so I've got two that are exactly the same. In fact, these guys are probably the weirdest mods that I've done to a guitar to date. Yeah, I noticed two separate toggle switches on those. What all What all did you do? Well, if you're looking for an extended range guitar on the cheap, and you're not sure if you'll use it a bunch or even like it, I highly recommend looking at Rondo Music. I got my two seven strings from them back in, I think, like 2016 or something. Both of them are the Douglas Scope 727 model. I want to say they were like 180 bucks each. The hardware really left something to be desired, but I bought them to mod to the ends of the earth and back anyway. I threw a Floyd Rose special in each instead of the licensed Floyd Rose knockoff that they came with. Uh, N-Twistle Darkstar pickups, Grover tuners, a Floyd nut, Graftech saddles, but the real interesting part had to do with the third knob and that second switch. So I was a big fan of Chelsea Grin at the time, and their guitarists back then all used the Ernie Ball JP7 Majesty, which had a piezo pickup underneath the saddles. So I want to try out doing the same thing for myself. I mounted a piezo transducer inside the tremolo cavity to pick up the vibrations of the body, and the rest of the controls are pretty unique. The first spot is a volume for the magnetic pickups and has a push-pull for a roughly 15 decibel cut to get some cleaner sounds out of it real quick. The second pot is a volume pot for the piezo pickup, and the third pot is a tone for the magnetic pickups with a push-pull coil split. The first toggle switch is a normal pickup selector switch where you've got bridge, neck, or both, and the second treble switch selects either piezo, magnetic, or both. These controls really give you an insane range of tones. Oh, okay. I definitely see the point now. Oh yeah, it was a blast. Very early Carson guitar modding lore. I still use them quite a bit to this day, and the guitars have held up really well. Like I said, I had to gut literally all the hardware on these guys, but the body was solid mahogany, the neck was maple with a rosewood fretboard, 
The fretwork was really good. It's an amazing cheap guitar to use as a modding platform if you go into it with that expectation. I have to know though, we haven't heard it yet. How does the piezo sound? Uh, not good. Not good? <laughs> I mean, there's no preamp in it whatsoever. Like an acoustic guitar has a piezo preamp, uh, so this piezo is pretty quiet. But if I throw it on a regular clean guitar amp preset, you can hear that it's not the greatest by itself. <laughs> There definitely should have been a headphone warning before that, by the way. Yeah, but I mean, if you were to somehow take an acoustic guitar and like rip the preamp out of it and just put the straight up signal into an amp, like in fact, my travel guitar, if I take my travel guitar and I plug it straight into an amp, it sounds like that. Like piezos don't sound good by themselves. But if you create a separate preset that you can switch into with something like a MIDI switcher, you can get a really beautiful sounding texture to it that makes it all worth it. sounded better yeah it still isn't the greatest in my opinion but it's much better when you have a preset for it the real benefit is adding it into the signal of the magnetics uh, because the piezo is so much quieter than them it blends really really nicely even on a regular guitar preset it adds like an extra dimension with some added treble that sounds really unique i'm a pretty big fan of the mod while i probably wouldn't do it to one of my other guitars it works really well on these so like we mentioned before, we just watched the We Are The World documentary on Netflix, and it was actually pretty interesting. Yeah, it was fun until you paused it for like five minutes in every shot of the control room of A&M Records to see what gear they were using. Okay, I'm just curious. Can you really blame me? You got to see your Michael Jackson footage. I got to see vintage recording equipment. Yeah, I watched footage. You were basically doing a frame-by-frame frame of every piece of gear. You literally used a laser pointer to identify things and explain them to me. And we're all more knowledgeable now for it, aren't we? I guess. Anyway, did you know that We Are the World, the charity song produced in 1985 to encourage donations to combat the famine in the mid-80s Ethiopia, was actually recorded in a single night? Yeah. Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson actually wrote the song over a few days, bringing in producer Quincy Jones, who worked on Michael's Thriller record, to produce the song. And they used the fact that so many big-name artists would be in the area for the American Music Awards, coincidentally hosted by Lionel Richie himself, on that same night to ask them to feature on the song. Huge names like Bob Dylan, Huey Lewis, Cindy Lauper, Willie Nelson, Sheila E., Tina Turner, Diana Ross, even Bruce Springsteen were all on the track. It was actually pretty funny how they all talked about Al Jiro being really drunk the whole time and messing up his takes. <laughs> yeah, the single was actually a huge success, raising $10.8 million in the first four months, primarily from sales of the song's record within the United States and public donations. The money was used to send numerous packages of food, medicine, and clothing to Ethiopia and Sudan. 
The song's popularity still lives on, with a new version with some celebrities reprising their roles, along with new additions such as Miley Cyrus, Justin Bieber, and Jamie Foxx being recorded in 2010 to garner donations for the Haiti earthquake. All in all, it was a really cool documentary. If you've got an hour and a half and want to see one of the most interesting documentaries about the recording of a single song that I've seen to date, this is definitely the one to watch. Reach out over Facebook, Reddit, or email us at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com to suggest topics or just chat about gear. You can also check out our website, pedalsandpickups.com, for more information on every episode, merch for the show, and all kinds of fun stuff. Speaking of merch, if you guys want a t-shirt, you know where to go. We have probably the coolest t-shirt of any podcast. Honestly, probably not. Our t-shirt's kind of lame. We might need a new, a, a new design. Really? Yeah, not like, like, I want to keep the classic one. I like it. It's just dead stock, just the logo, lets you know that you had an hour to listen to two nerds talk about gear stuff. Okay, well, one nerd, I'll let you speak for yourself. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but I don't know, I want, I don't know, I have an idea in my head. You know, like when all the pieces are there, but you don't have the way to get something out, if oh, that makes sense. Oh, absolutely, that's my entire life. I want something that looks like the theme of, like, the Matrix, like that green binary in the shape uh. of, like, a tube that says, I want to believe, like the uh, X-Files thing. But I feel like the joke won't it's very land. Niche. I mean, it's super niche because the joke is like solid state versus tubes and all that. But I feel like the joke won't land. Um, I want to do another one that says like reverb makes everything better and has like a picture of a hall, a spring, a plate and all that. But that seems also kind of like too in the weeds. Um, I don't know. I really got to... I feel like your designs are a little too technical. Yeah, I mean that's the problem. I'm I get way too into the weeds. I can't think of something that's like, oh everybody gets this. It's just like, oh yeah. Do you know what a JRC forty five fifty eight is? Maybe you'll get this shirt. <laughs> I uh, if you guys have ideas for a shirt that you would like to see, send them to us. We will throw it up on Teespring for sure. Um, if it's cool enough that we throw it up on Teespring, we will send you a free one. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. Other than that, thanks for hanging out with us for another week. Um, we will hopefully be back next weekend without either of us being sick this time. Maybe. Hopefully. Hopefully. I'm over it. <laughs> anyway, we will see you guys then. And until then, take care. <laughs>